The Free for All Roundtable. Brought to you by Lexus Avon, Canada's newest Lexus dealer. Near Canada's Wonderland in the Maple Auto Mall. Luxury is closer than you think. Round one. Here are our panelists for round one. Brought to you by Lexus Avon. Tim Hudak is here, former leader of Ontario's Conservatives. He's now at the Ontario Real Estate Association. Tamara Cherry with Pickup Communications, author of the very fine book, The Trauma Beat. And Mark Warner is here, international trade lawyer. Uh, let's start with something, well, I was going to say mundane. I'm not sure if it is, actually. A lot of people are hot and bothered over Olivia Chow getting an automatic pay upgrade of about $7,000, uh, $7,600, I think is the actual figure. Let me start with somebody who's actually served in elected office, Tim Hudak. We came up with these means of establishing what people in public service get paid, and then we always squawk when they automatically kick in. Yeah, and you need a consistent and transparent way of determining compensation for elected leaders, John. And, and then and then you stick with. It. Otherwise, it is arbitrary, constantly um, politicized, and then you get sort of their huge increases or long freezes. So, uh, look, I, I think this uh, is actually reasonable as part of their budgeting process. It matches uh, CPI. I guess I'll tune in later this afternoon to the rush with Deb Hutton, and she will correct me if I'm wrong here. But that's uh, that's my that's my gut on this, John. You look, can't ask at breakfast. <laughs> we didn't get a chance on this one the um the uh i, I remember in 2008 i believe uh, john even even earlier we we did uh, pay freezes when i was an mpp both in the government side it was briefly reopened and then it was frozen again in 2008 and has remained so since 2008 so now for 15 years it's been frozen because the longer you delay the harder it is to adjust clear consistent transparent ways of making these decisions the same way you should do minimum wage for example same for the politicians well and mark warner the difference between people always think that politicians are spoiled rotten with their pay but most of the people i know i know some former federal cabinet ministers for example who now make in the millions and you know they set that aside for the time that they served in office not that they're on a poverty wage but i think this indignation is a bit misplaced I think there's a challenge, right? There's two things where you're trying to do here. You want to set the rate, the, the salary level, um, at a level that is um, sort of high enough that you that that that, does, that, 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 that you can ensure assure that the only people who enter politics aren't people who are, aren't already independently wealthy, like in the old days. So that's the case for having higher salaries and, and having them indexed properly. On the other hand, you don't want the salary to be too high so that it becomes the best job that some people have ever had. Uh, you know, right out of school and you get yourself into some junior cabinet position and you're making $350,000 and you actually never worked a day in your life and all of a sudden people are running around calling you honorable this and honorable that, which is what you got a lot of at the federal level, which <laughs> makes no sense to me. Um, and then on the other hand, you get the Ontario government that uh, did, as, you, as Tim said, uh, you know, got rid of the pensions and, and, you know, you get rid of a pension and you find that a lot of people say, ah, not interested. <laughs> so you get a pretty low quality uh, class of politicians at the at the provincial level, because who would do that job for the base pay of an MP? Like who who would possibly want to do that job for that salary? Tim, sorry for saying this. <laughs> Without a pension, I don't get it. Okay. <laughs> I, I get it if you're a cabinet minister, but I, I, the rest of it I don't get. You, know, you got to have a spouse who's making money somewhere or something or independent source of income. Yeah, and for the record, Tamara Cherry, so people know the figures we're talking about, in 2023, Olivia Chow is making $216,000, and she's getting a 3.5% bump. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a big deal, but at the same time, 
Uh, Olivia Chow said she didn't ask for this raise. She doesn't want this raise. And at the end of the day, she has her strong mayor powers to take the raise out of her own budget when she puts it forward in the coming days or weeks. So let's just see what happens. Yeah. Or, you know what, donate it to charity and you'll get a 50% uh, you know, bump back. Uh, let's continue on the theme of presumed privilege. Carolyn Bennett, outgoing MP and cabinet minister, has been named ambassador to Denmark. Let's, let's talk to the chief internationalist on the panel about this first. Mark Warner, is that outrageous? Or, I mean, you know, this is what governments do. They appoint their own people to patronage appointments. You know, I think the reality is the only way they were going to get Carolyn Bennett to give up her seat for a younger, fresher face in a safe riding like uh, St. Paul's that she's owned for so long is if you gave her something. It's pretty clear to me. And uh, so I can understand why the liberals would have to do that. Um, Denmark, you know, then, you know, the, the reality of, of uh, modern European politics is nobody really cares about the actual individual members of the European Union. The real action is at the European level in Brussels. So and this is like kind of like giving someone a fancy hat or car to drive around with. It's an utterly unimportant position, means absolutely nothing to the Europeans. Um, they'll probably say, well, it's at least it's better than the Americans giving it to someone, a big uh, donor to a presidential campaign. But they'll look at it much the same way like who is this lady and how is she connected to anything and then they'll if you want to have a serious conversation they'll go to brussels not copenhagen i happen to like fancy hats um listen <laughs> quick sidebar here uh, josh matlow saying yesterday that he's thinking of running in uh bennett's old riding there's already a prime minister favored candidate in the form of christine church but anyway let's keep moving uh tim hudak Let's face it, you know, I always remember a friend of mine who was an NDP supporter was very excited when an NDP government was elected because she thought she might be in line for a judgeship. It's just kind of how it works. Well, look, judgeship should not be a patronage, but let me make the, the case of why I do think politicians can be effective in diplomatic uh, circles. And I appreciate Mark's cynicism, but how much those roles mean anymore? There, there goes my dreams of getting the ambassador's hat and cape or whatever else equipment <laughs> they get uh, down the road. But, you know, I've worked with, with many ambassadors um, uh, over the years, John, and, and some former politicians um, can make tremendous ambassadors. Ralph Goodale, right, former liberal cabinet minister now in the U.K. I think it's a prime example. It can go sideways. John McCollum got a, a bit of the Manchurian candidate syndrome, I think, when he was ambassador for, for China. But look, politicians that tend to be, if they're successful in high ranks, consummate networkers. They are good at delivering messages. Uh, they uh, are, I think, very good at, at lobbying uh, on a position. That's what they do for their entire career in politics. They stay on top of issues. So I actually do think that there is a skill set here, and I will back Carolyn Bennett for this position. I think she's earned it. I think she'll do a good job. Okay, listen, I want to get to some other topics, but Tamara, you know, policing is often a part of your special interest. So I'll start with you on a study, and I'd be very curious to hear what you have to say about this because I don't know even how the you know the methodology we'll talk with the author at 935 but a new study insists that public safety does not actually correlate with the amount that we spend on police budgets is that actually even a provable scenario I no, I would say not I mean one of the problems with uh, budgets and policing and so much that has to do with work of this sort is are, how do you measure the return on investment how do you account for um, the crimes that didn't happen because of a neighborhood police officer 
who created a special bond with a kid when they were seven and stayed in touch with them throughout the years. And as a result, he didn't join a gang. How do you account for the um, the fact that, you know, a, a victim or survivor of a traumatic event was 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 felt felt like they were taken care of in a better way because police had more training in that regard. Bottom line, I mean, this study is looking at a 10 year period. How many roles have we added to police over that decade? So many of them. You know, we at, at the end of the day, police police remain tasked with an increasing amount of duties. Um, you know, people say there's an in, say there's an increase in random attacks on the TTC. People aren't screaming for mental health supports or an acknowledgement and correction um, to the harm that came from removal of services during the pandemic. They're screaming at police to make them safe, to make them feel safe. So th this I mean, there's I could go on and on, John, but this mm. study, there's there's so much in this story. And I read it yesterday um, that we don't see at like, for example, over all these police services, there's no breakdown of, you know, what what they were spending on. So, for example, was the Saskatoon Police Service spending the same amount on training their officers in mental health supports in well-being? And also there's no mention of what is the cost? I know this wasn't the aim of the study, but I would love to see a study on what is the cost to officers when we cut services and when we cut budgets, specifically to, to officers' mental well-being, because there are a huge number of officers right across the country that are going off work on sick leave with PTSD. Right. They're not being replaced because it's WSIB claims. Therefore, officers on the ground are short-staffed. They're being burdened with more calls. They're burning out. They're going off sick and on and on. And there's a huge cost to society here. So I think we need to focus le less on this sort of thing, which doesn't really give us any real officers, and figure out how we can take care of our officers so that they can give us the adequate services that we keep screaming for them to provide. Okay, let me turn to Mark Warner because, Mark, the presumption always is, and actually the assertion is from police unions, for example, that any dollar we spend less on policing is one step closer to calamity. Yeah, I, I guess I really want to hear the interview that you do later on because from this article, I, it seems kind of dodgy to me. There's a quote in here where they say, that the researchers did report a correlation between increases in per capita spending and the change in crime rates reported in the next year um, when they looked at the average of the 17 cities they looked at and the researcher responsible for it said ah, we chose not to highlight that figure because it wasn't <laughs> representative of our overall findings okay that's not kind of the way i learned to do research but interested to hear what you find out about it um, you know I, I i i don't know what to make make of a study like this john so i'll just leave it at that in their own words okay well and that's the thing i mean tim hudak this is not necessarily an economic paper but there are economic principles to it and i i'm just not sure that the premise can be proven no, it's a, it's a garbage study. Hey, look, look, this did not do the academic um, lifting that justify the headlines it, it has uh, received. I, I remember doing my, my, my graduate work, and we kind of had fun with Disraeli's old expression, "What well, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Add on master's thesis on top of that, and it explains, explains a lot. Look, I, I think what would be a more interesting study, quite frankly, John, is look at how much police are actually spending on the job, fighting crime, working in the community, as Demera outlined there, as opposed to filling out paperwork, you know, waiting in line, filing constant reports that to me be much more instructive than this week's study uh, most of us and most of the people I deal with on the air uh, do not have conventional jobs so I'm not sure that this necessarily applies and actually Tim there's almost no time on the clock I'll, I'll go to you on this because you actually run a workplace apparently people are bored at work and instead of burnout the worry is bored out 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you can really help yourself here. We don't have that problem at Array. It's kind of the opposite end on, on the burnout. But I remember when I worked actually uh, going through university at a paint factory, John, and my job on the assembly line <laughs> was to take the can, get the handle, notch it into one side and the other so the handle worked, passed it down the line. I actually remember getting lectured by the union leader. I had to slow down and, and taught me how to look busy when the boss came by. That was <laughs> bore out for me. Help yourself. I got a better job. You've had some interesting jobs. Yes. Yeah. The paint factory. I'll do, I'll do more on the paint factory down the road. Okay. You should have talked about that one more when you were ready for election. If I could go back in time. Thank you all. Good to have you. Tim Hudak, Tamara Cherry, and Mark Warner. Catch the roundtable. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.